Hi, my name's Tara Humphrey and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast, where I will be sharing interviews and insights from the field of healthcare. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you by THC Primary Care, where we provide operations and project management to primary care networks. If you are a clinical lead or a practice manager and your primary care network to-do list is growing by the minute and you could do with an extra pair of hands to deliver some of your projects and network-based services, I would absolutely love to help you. So come and check us out at www.thcprimarycare.co.uk. Now let's jump into this week's episode. and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. On today's episode, I have got the amazing Lisa Rodriguez CBE joining me on the podcast. Lisa is a former chief executive. She used to run Sussex Partnership NHS Foundation Trust from 2001 to 2014. She is a writer, she's a coach, a mental health campaigner. She's vice chair of the Mary Seacole Trust. She's also a Samaritan. And what led me to Lisa was her book, Being a NHS Chief Executive, What They Never Told Me, or If They Did, I Wasn't Listening. And the book is a behind-the-scenes look at Lisa's life, the difficult decisions she had to make. And what is also remarkable about her is that she was running this huge organisation whilst living with mental illness. The book is, it's both funny and insightful and sad and thought-provoking and charming. And if you are a leader, regardless of whether you work in uh, like an NHS trust or not, you will be able to relate to points of this book. And I cannot recommend it enough. We will leave the link, the Amazon link in the show notes. If you have not read it, I urge you to pick yourself up a copy. So Lisa kindly um, gave her time to me. In this interview, we talk about leading in uncertain times. We talk about equality and diversity. We talk about mental health. We talk about writing. We talk about imposter syndrome. So it was just like chatting to an old friend. I love it when you meet somebody that you don't know and you've just you just click and that you could talk to them all day. I really hope that you enjoy this. I think that it's one that you'll listen again. She does give some practical advice about recruiting a diverse workforce. She also gives some practical advice of what a leader can do when they potentially don't have a diverse workforce and they recruit their first minority person. She gives some advice on how to support that person and also advice to that person to say, you know, trust that you're there because you're the best person for the job. And the diversity you bring is just an added bonus. It's not the reason why you are there. So as always, if you like this episode, please give us a a like and a share on social media. And it would be absolutely amazing if you could go onto iTunes and give the show a rating and review. And I'll see you in the next episode. Hi Lisa, how are you doing? Oh Tara, I'm I'm okay. I'm quite tired. It's a very strange time that we're making this recording, but it's so lovely to be here with you. Ah, oh, thank you. I've been very, very excited. I'm very prepared. 
Um, so thank you for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. I came across you because I don't know how, but I bought your book. I don't know where it came to me, but I saw the title and I thought that is re- that is right up my street. And the book that I'm talking about is Being an NHS Chief Executive. And I thought on the off chance, I was a bit like, maybe I could just reach out to her and see if she'll come on the podcast, thinking that I wouldn't get a response. And lo and behold, you did. And here you are. So thank you so much. So for my listeners that may not be aware of you, um, could you give us a brief introduction to your career to date? Okay, so, um, well, I I would say I'm in my third career these days. Um, My first career, which I started when I was 18, I trained to be a nurse um, and I did that in London and Cambridge and um, Sussex. And then I went on after being a sick children's nurse and a, a general nurse, I trained as a health visitor. Did that until my early 30s and then I moved into management and I would say that's my second career and that culminated in being an executive director for a while and then 13 years as an NHS trust chief executive I ran um, a large mental health trust in Sussex and I also had various national roles during that time including chair of the mental health network. Um, I then became vice chair of the NHS confederation and um, I sat on various national panels. Um, and I got a CBE for my services to the NHS in 2012, uh, which I had to think about a bit. You know, I'm a bit of a Republican, but in the end, um, <laughs> I thought it would really please my mum. <laughs> so I went ahead and accepted it. Um, and then I retired from my NHS job in uh, 2014. Um, the year before I retired, I decided that I owed it to people who I served, not my staff, but the patients that we served, for me to be a bit more honest about my own experiences of using mental health services. So I, I sort of came out and wrote an article in the Health Service Journal, and then I had a bit of a breakdown and I had some time away from work. Um, but I retired in 2014, and since then, I've always wanted to describe myself not as what I used to do, but what I do now. So these days, I'm a writer, a coach, and a mental health campaigner. And I campaign about mental health because I think it matters more than anything else. Um, I've got two voluntary roles these days. One of them is I'm a Samaritan. We we didn't used to be able to tell people we were Samaritans um, because uh, people would ring the local number and they might actually get hold of somebody they knew. But these days we can because you just ring 116123 or joe at org um, on the email. Uh, And I'm also vice chair of the Mary Seacole Trust. And we put up the statue to the nurse black nurse Mary Seacole outside St. Mrs. Hospital on the 30th of June 2016. And the book you're mentioning, I remember my um, uh, retirement due and I said I was going to write a book and I thought I'd get it banged out in about six months. Four years later I finally produced the thing like giving birth to a brick and it's the story really of, um, of what it's like to be in a senior position, how I got there, all the mistakes I made, a few of the good things I did, but it's a much shorter list than the mistakes. And then really the experience of moving on from that and what I do now. So that's that's my book. It came out in um, 2018. What's the response been uh, from your colleagues about the book? Very nice, actually. Um, I mean, I had a, had a little launch party at the Royal College of Nursing and quite a few of my old colleagues, well, my, the whole of my old executive team came along, which is lovely to see them all together again, all going back together. Um, yeah, people have been really lovely about it. It's sold, I mean, it's not a bestseller, but it's sold, what, about three, three and a half thousand copies now. 
um, it's you get it on Amazon or you can order it through bookshops or it's also available as a um, an, you know a, a, an ebook so you can have it on your on your various devices including Kindle um, and yeah people seem to quite like it I do I do quite a lot of talks and I tend to take it along with me and I give it out as prizes to people and you know but, but mainly people have bought it and they tell me like you they found it useful it's quite light in style it's not an academic book um, it doesn't have a whole whole um, raft of references it's just my thoughts really it's fantastic it's called being an NHS chief executive what they told me or if they did I wasn't listening actually it's what they never told me oh sorry listening it's all right what they never told me and and that's important because it's kind of a joke at my own expense because I don't always listen as well as I should or haven't always listened as well as I should. I'm getting better at listening. Um, I'm still a work in progress, though. OK, so let's jump in. So we obviously had a conversation before because there's just so this podcast could be it could be a mini series. So we wanted to be very focused as much as we could. And one of the things that just struck me from the book is that there were so many examples of you doing things that you may not have done before. So building a hospital, shutting uh, hospitals down and doing things in uncertain times. And when thinking about where we are today, we've got COVID, we've got Black Lives Matters, we've got mental health. There are so many things that healthcare professionals have to do. And sometimes they've never done it before. And we're all working it out together. And I just thought it'd be helpful for you to share your take on how do we lead in such uncertain times and how do we preserve our energy because it's 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 a long time doing this stuff before we allow ourselves to have a break yes it is a long time and and it's absolutely been the subject of coaching sessions that i've been doing uh with senior leaders and um others during this week actually um what i would say is that I wasn't always as kind to myself as perhaps I should have been or I might have been. Uh, my advice to any leader is to start off with, if you're not OK, uh, you can't help others to be OK. So you must, must, must look after yourself. And um, these days as a coach, I use um, various different uh, techniques. But the one perhaps that I like the best because it helps us talk about difference is using the Myers-Briggs personality uh, profiling tools. So I'm, I'm, I'm now qualified to do that. I always used it uh, when I was an executive director myself and with my team, helped us to understand difference and also why sometimes I might not be as good at some things or I might be rather grumpy about other things I wasn't so good at. Uh, yet to get to know yourself, um, I think I might, I might have quoted it in the book, but I, I love the saying from Carl Rogers, the um, psycho American psychologist, who said, um, what I am is good enough if I would only be it openly. Uh, and what he meant by that was get to know yourself and be honest with yourself and then be honest with others and that will make life so much easier. And I, I wished I'd had that as my mantra right from the beginning, but towards the end, that's what I was doing and it did make life much easier for me, but even more so easier for other people. Do you think people find it hard to be themselves? I do, I do. Because there's so much written about leadership and management and the expectations and there are also role models held up of particular styles and approaches. And if you don't fit that particular uh, style or approach, you might try to bend yourself into that. I mean, I, I did that um, quite a lot when I was um, first an executive director and then a chief executive, trying to be 
in the in the mold of uh, classically sort of quite extrovert, quite um, uh, decisive, um, judgmental, uh, strategic chief executive who you know could get things done and didn't take any prisoners along the way. But that 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 isn't my pref my set of preferences, and I wasn't necessarily comfortable doing that all the time. So towards towards the latter part of my time as a chief exec, I, I think I was being more honest with myself and therefore my team about what I found difficult. And one of the things I found incredibly difficult was making decisions, which you'd think, my God, as a chief executive, you've got to make decisions. But I'm somebody who really likes to keep looking for new possibilities, opening up more options. I find the decision, I mean, when friends go out for a meal with me, they find this very annoying because I'll, I'll go, go around the table. Uh, goodness knows when we can do this again. But, uh, I mean, you know, thinking back to the days when we went to, to restaurants, go around the table, it'd get to me. I changed my mind three times. Um, and then I'd choose what somebody else had chosen because I knew they were good at making decisions. But then I'd think suddenly, oh no, I wanted X and have to call the person back. So, um, yeah, I find making decisions quite hard. Uh, but the, the way to make decisions is to give yourself long enough and then you will make the right decision. Sometimes as a chief exec, I had to rush it. Going back to these uncertain times today, of course you have to make decisions. Um, and sometimes you have to make really difficult decisions. I know people having to make decisions such as whether relatives can visit sick people in hospital. And that's really, really difficult um, to make those sort of decisions. Uh, but you've got to make the decisions on the basis of this, the, the advice you're being given and also what you know to be right. So I think all of these leaders need to cut themselves some slack and give themselves the right amount of time to make their decisions. And do you think if the leaders need to cut themselves some slack, also their colleagues need to cut them some slack? Because I'm sure there'll be lots of people thinking, well, you're the chief exec. Yes, yes, yes. Why can't you make a decision? Um, well, I think everybody needs to cut each other some slack. But if you work out a way of working in the team, whereby, uh, you you know, you, it's, an, it's an old cliche, but, you know, you work like the geese, the Canada geese who fly in the formation and then you take it in turns to take the wind at the front cyclists do the same thing they move around in the peloton so it's not always the same person taking the wind um, and the chief executive you don't always have to be the one at the front uh, sometimes you can be the one holding somebody else's jacket and encouraging them to come forward not necessarily because you don't want to do it in fact it shouldn't be because you don't want to do it it's because it's going to be a good time and a good experience for them to have to have a go but a team is much stronger if you all take it in turns, and if you don't all agree with one another all the time, you really need voices of dissent and you need people with different experiences and different backgrounds. The team looks the same as one another or all comes from the same university college or even university, um, the same school sometimes. Um, I guess I'm talking about governments now. That's not a healthy team because they're not going to have difference, they won't have different voices. And that will mean that they will tend to violently agree with one another and then come up with the wrong decisions sometimes. So at the time of recording, we are in the middle of June. Black Lives Matters has always has been around for a long time, but it's been kind of catapulted and thrust into everybody's consciousness. And so when you say when if you've got a team that all looks the same, how do you create a team that doesn't all look the same? This is where, I mean, I, one of the one of the few times in the book that I did blow my own trumpet was that I found myself able to create a team that was almost exactly representative of the organisation 
that that I led. So the organisation was 70% female, the NHS, most people are women who work in the NHS because in caring roles, particularly nursing, that's that's the way it falls currently. Be good if it was more even, but that it is 70% female currently. Uh, 20% black and minority ethnic and 10% um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. So I wanted a senior team that reflected that and didn't take that long just by recruiting the best people every time we had a vacancy for the team to exactly reflect that. And then it was like that with changing actors, but it was like that for the next eight years. And I'm really proud of that. And what that meant was we did have difference around the table because yes, we were mainly female, but then our workforce was, uh, but we also had people from different BME backgrounds. Um, and we had people from lesbian, gay, bisexual, we didn't have any transgender people, um, but lesbian, gay, bisexual backgrounds. And so they were able to say things that we wouldn't have thought of ourselves on our own because there was that difference. So I think, I think if you go out of your way to look for the best people and you really want to find those differences, you will find them. You really will find them. I mean, I know that some people say you have to do blind recruitment. I didn't have to do that. I just found that those people came up because we said we wanted to appoint a diverse workforce. The bit of the workforce that we never said was diverse was the bit I represented, which was somebody who had experience of using mental health services. I didn't come out about that until towards the end. I wish I had really, because that would have increased it even more. But yeah, um, I think you have to have the intention and then you have to deliver on those actions and you have to do whatever it takes to make that team diverse. And any team that doesn't look diverse, doesn't sound diverse, is not going to give you the diverse answers. You can do all sorts of things to counteract your um, your tendencies, but nothing um, replaces having the real people there in the room. Why do you think, and this is a really big question, we are in the situation that we are in. Why do we have NHS teams and organisations that are not diverse? Well, because people appoint people who are like themselves, who sound like themselves, who who uh, who are jolly good jolly good chaps. You know, I mean, the top of the NHS. I think it's true to say almost all male. Um, uh, you know, I'm talking about now the centre and the sort of large organisations such as Public Health England, NHS England, etc. Almost all male, and I think totally white. That's not right. That can't be right. I'm really pleased to see uh, that the new chair of the NHS Confederation um, is Victor Adebowale, a very good friend of mine who is a black guy. He stands out because he's the only one. We need to create a situation where the top of the NHS is the same as the NHS throughout. And that will mean we'll make different decisions. So if you've got your chief executive hat on, you're starting out on this journey saying, OK, we want to make the commitment to equality and diversity. And you appoint your first black person. So that person is the only one. What advice are you going to give to that person who is the only one? They are the token. They are the first. I think, well, I've had a similar conversation with one or two people. I, I would say to them, first of all, I'm not going to give you the lead on equality, diversity and human rights. I will take it. That's my responsibility as the chief executive. But I want you to work with me on this. I want you to, to know that you can say anything to me you need to say, including when I do things that you don't think are right. I want you to come and tell me 
don't hide your concerns. Please come and say it, share them. And then I would go out of my way to find them a network where they would get the support that they needed so they could say and do the things that they need to say and do. But I think I would also try to see that in many instances, they just happen to be black or Asian. Um, they're doing a job which doesn't require them to be anything. It just requires them to be good at that job. And so most of the time we should be concentrating on that. And they bring this other thing, this diversity with them and it enriches, but it's not their reason for being there. They're there because they're the greatest medical director, chief operating officer, director of nursing, whatever it is their, their, their key role is. Um, but then I would also work very hard to make sure they weren't the only one uh, because that is an uncomfortable position to be in. Um, it's great for me as, uh, as vice chair of the Mary Seacole Trust to um, have the experience of being in the minority uh, quite a bit of the time when I'm at our board meetings because I'm one of the few white people there. Um, but it was even better to be walking around Emancipation Park in Kingston, Jamaica, um, back in March with our chair, Trevor, who's a very good friend. Um, we'd gone to um, help the Mary Seacole Association in, in Jamaica to, to do a relaunch. And we were so lucky to get there because obviously we just got back in time just before the coronavirus hit. But walking around Emancipation Park, which is this beautiful park that they did up after um, independence. And uh, there were about six or 700 people in there. One white person, me. I was the only one. What an experience. What an experience. That's what it's like for black people in boardrooms across the country very often. And uh, it's very different for them because, um, you know, I was, I'm from the uh, background where I've never experienced the things that they've experienced. So we need to listen. We really need to listen. Um, black lives matter hugely to me. And it's black lives that matter hugely to me because of what's going on. So tell me more about your role in the Mary Seacole Trust and what does the trust do? Well, I mean, you know, our, our main claim to fame is that we've got a statue of the, the um, Jamaican nurse, Mary Seacole, um, and, and she's pretty imposing. You know, she's three metres high and she's outside St Thomas's Hospital and she's looking directly across at the Houses of Parliament. She's lined up. I mean, the, the, the uh, sculptor, Martin Jennings, is a genius. There's a big circle behind her which represents the earth. And he went to the Crimea, um, couldn't go now, but uh, he, he was able to go back in, I think, 2014, he went. And he took rubbings of the ground where her hospital um, was, was said to have been built. He also brought back some little bits of broken bottle that we think might have been the bottles that she was serving, serving drinks into the officers who came there. And um, so the circle matches the ground. He's made it look like the ground. And, but it also lines up directly with the clock face on Big Ben. And the lighting on the statue comes on at exactly the moment the lighting comes on in Big Ben, which is lighting up time when the streetlights go on you know, as, as it gets darker. So it's much later in the summer than in the winter. And she's almost more beautiful at night than in the day because the shadow comes up and this is an imposing figure. And she's walking towards the Houses of Parliament, um, walking into adversity, really. And the way he's depicted her is that she's carrying her satchel of herbs across her, her body um, and She's walking forward sort of resolutely and she's got one foot in front of the other. And um, the foot is shiny because children go along and polish it. I mean, she's visited by millions of people every year. And the day we had her unveiled, um, I mean, people just couldn't stop looking at this beautiful, beautiful face of this woman in her 50s 
this kind face. And we, we knew what she looked like because there's a photograph of her that uh, was found at Winchester College, which was used as the basis of the statue. And she's she's got this kind, resolute face. And so what we do is we say, what would Mary Seacole do today? So we've got a statue of her. That's wonderful. It's the first named statue to a black woman in the whole of the UK. But what would she do today? She wouldn't put up with any of this stuff. She would be uh, doing something about it. So, um, I mean, there'll be a little announcement next week. I can probably mention that it's something to do with how we uh, say things about statues of people who came from the imperial time when slavery was the way that a lot of people were making their money, how we can explain their history um, in modern terms, how we can inform young people. Um, there'll also be um, uh, an opportunity for people to consider um, Mary in the light of her as a role model for young people. So we, we, we have various programmes that, we, that we're working on with um, schools. We had an event um, uh, that was supported by the Mayor of London uh, back in February this year, where we had some uh, young people who wrote pieces about who their modern day Mary Seacole would be, and we had an event for them at City Hall. So we try to inspire young people. We also um, comment on uh, situations. So the Black Lives Matter is something that we've uh, done a piece on. I, I wrote that piece actually. Um, so mainly we're there as um, sort of beacon, um, uh, pointing people in the right direction, but also informing people um, why it is that diversity is something that we all have to work on and why the fight that Mary was fighting because she experienced racism, my goodness, um, is not over yet. Uh, and it's one that we can all participate in. I, I've thought really hard about accepting the role of vice chair. I thought that perhaps one of the, the black or other minority members of the trustees should take the vice chair role. And I, 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 I took soundings from other members of the trustee board and they thought it was right because it's not the fight of black people to have to deal with these issues that Mary was dealing with and BME people are still dealing with today. It, it's all of our fight. So I'm, I'm very proud to um, have that role. And um, yeah, I love working. We, we call ourselves Seacole family. It's wonderful working together. So could you, if we now move on to mental health and some of your experiences, and what your what are you campaigning for today? As at this moment, I'm not really campaigning for anything, uh, but I, I guess what I would say is that I want people to understand that mental and physical health are all part of the same thing, and that people have negative experiences of physical health, negative experiences of mental health. I think we're all very aware, and certainly as a Samaritan volunteer, I'm aware that the, uh, the, the virus is causing all sorts of problems for people's mental health as we speak. Um, loneliness, isolation, but also people questioning their, their purpose. And you know the, the worry that we have that there'll be many people whose jobs disappear because of changes to the economy, and those jobs won't be replaced by the same sort of jobs. And so what will those people do? How will they, how will they earn their living? How will they live? But also how will they feel a sense of society? I think one of the worst things about the virus is it's disconnected us. I guess one of the reasons why many people loved going outside their front doors and flapping on a Thursday night was because it made them feel part of something again. But for those people who are having to shield, and many of them are people with serious mental health problems because they've also got serious physical health problems, they can't even do that because that was too dangerous for them. So how are we going to uh, um, engage those people in society again? 
it's a big worry. But where I came into all of this was um, I wanted to reduce the stigma of mental illness. You know, um, when I first started nursing, people would say dreadful things about mental health. When I applied to be a, a mental health trust chief executive, somebody very, very senior in the NHS said, uh, a great idea, Lisa, but you know, once you go down that path, you'll never come out of there again. Um, it's a backwater. And if you want to run, um, you know, a big acute trust in London one day, don't go into mental health. And I thought, oh, and then I thought, actually, you're so wrong. You're so wrong. That's where it's at. But also, I don't see why if you run mental health, you can't run physical health and vice versa. Actually, mental health is much harder. It's much more complex. It's much more nuanced. Um, the people are with you for longer. The mistakes uh, last much longer. So um, I think it's a wonderful, a wonderful area in which to work. And I'm very, very privileged to had the opportunity to work in it for 25 years of my of my career. What was it like sharing with your colleagues that you were suffering at some points and living with quite severe mental health um, issues? I mean, I wouldn't say severe um, in the sense that, um, you know, my, my, my thing is anxiety and depression. Now, when you have severe depression, which I did, um, uh, a couple of times you do want to be dead so it's pretty awful but there is treatment for it and you can get better and you can do things that will help you stay better so um, it's not the same as for example having a psychotic illness where uh, sometimes the treatments are almost as bad as the illness itself because they cause all sorts of side effects um, including people putting on huge amounts of weight and therefore having health problems associated so I, I don't want to pretend that my experiences have been uh, worse than, than they really have been. But I have wanted to be dead on occasions. I have considered suicide. I did have one suicide attempt when I was a long, long time ago. So I know what it feels like not to want to be alive. Um, but I also know what it feels like to have periods of time when um, you have to sort of brush over your CV because you weren't there. I mean, you know, I have non-existent A-levels, for example, because I was going through a very difficult patch. Uh, when I mean non-existent, I literally don't have any A-levels. And, uh, and yet I've got um, I've got a very good degree in psychology. I've got a master's in public sector management. I've got a CBE. I've got all my nursing qualifications. So I managed to catch up because I was lucky and I had the sort of family that would help me. Other people don't necessarily have those things. So mental illness can cause all kinds of detriments. and um, I don't want it to be like that. I want people just to have to deal with the, the issue they're dealing with rather than have to pretend that uh, there's something else wrong with them. And I don't want people to call people like me nutters or, um, you know, a bit of a screw loose or think that it's some kind of illness where it's rather sweet, but, you know, you couldn't really ever manage anything properly. Because look at me, I, I've, I've been quite successful and I, you know, I think I probably could do more things. Um, uh, and yet, uh, you know, I, I probably will get depression again one day. Who knows? Um, at the moment, I'm OK. What can organisations do to support their staff with their mental health, with everybody's mental health? Yes, yes. Well, we all have mental health. And there's quite a nice diagram of a sort of steps approach, which is, you know, this is the top of the steps is, is really good mental health and down the bottom is mental illness. And most of us are somewhere on that escalator or set of steps at various points in our lives um, and we can organizations can help you make sure that you stay up near the top of those steps so 
they can make sure that you have a work-life balance that uh, encourages you to exercise, to eat well, uh, not to drink too much alcohol, not to take too many illegal substances. These are all things we can we can do. For me, um, exercising outside is probably the most important thing that I can do for my mental health. On my bike, there's something about getting on my bicycle and um, the connection with my body. And when I, I don't know, I learned to ride a bike when I was six and it just, every time I get on it, I feel the same as I did that first time. Uh, and so I, I get out a couple of times a week and, you know, more if I can. So organisations can support people to do those things. But it's also really important that they listen to their staff because probably the hardest thing for people who are experiencing mental illness is to say, I'm not okay. So if you can encourage a culture where everybody in the organisation asks the person they're sitting near, and perhaps not quite so close these days because of the virus, but they say, how are you? And then instead of going, hi, how are you? And not really listening, they actually really listen. Because it's the person who's near you, who's next to you, maybe your, your colleague or your, or your direct line manager who can help you the most after you've helped yourself. So if you ask the question and somebody says, I'm not doing too good, I'm feeling really low, it's how to respond to that question without making that person unintentionally feel bad or feel worse or you've just said something or you've just thought, why on earth did I just say that? People are good at asking the questions, but they're not always, or we're not always good at responding. Some things don't need a response, but some things do. Yes. So two answers to that. I mean, one is, you know, organisations can make sure that the staff do some kind of training, like mental health first aid is the one that a lot of people have heard of. It's a fantastic training and it it basically makes sure that everybody in the organisation is able to ask that question and then knows what to say or what not to say in response. So rather than say, oh, no, you can't be feeling that bad or, oh, but I expect if you had a cup of tea, you'd feel better or, or trying to put it right, they actually listen. And then if they are really concerned that they help the person get the help they need, that, that, that's a very useful thing to do. But the other thing I would say is, is what I've learned from Samaritans, and I'm still learning, and I've been a Samaritan a long time, but I'm still learning, is that there really isn't anything wrong you can say as long as your intention is positive and as long as you keep on listening and you try to set aside judgment. So when the person says, I feel like killing myself, you don't say, oh, don't do that. Your mother would be so upset. You go, I want to say a bit more about that and let them speak. Probably the thing that's going to help them to save their own life, um, that will help them keep on talking to you. And, you know, talking is the, is the safest thing you can do. So lots of these campaigns that are around now about getting men to talk about their feelings, as men tend to be worse at it than women. Um, they are based on the best research, which is, talk to somebody you know a problem shared not necessarily hard but it's you take a bit of the weight they can help you take a bit of the weight and the first time you say it I mean I remember when I spoke to my team I thought I was going to puke you know I felt absolutely ghastly the next time wasn't quite so hard and then the time after that not so hard again so it gets easier so let's talk about writing so I think I don't know if it's a quote or I've made it up or I've I've probably stolen it from somewhere, but there apparently is a book inside all of us. And one of the conversations we kind of had offline was a lot of people listening to this podcast are professionals. They work in the field of health. We have to write all of the time, emails, reports, reports that people aren't ever going to read. I've got a blog. 
we have to write every day. How can we write things that makes people want to read till the end? <laughs> How can you write better? Well, I mean, some people are better at speaking and some people are better at writing and some people find both quite hard. But the more you do it, the easier it gets. So what I would say about writing is that it might be really, really hard if you haven't written anything for a while to write something. Just have a go. Just have a go. Um, I mean, I, I, I read a lot of writers who write about writing. Uh, writers love writing about writing. It means a write, a write about writing instead of writing. Do you see what I mean? Um, so people like Kurt Vonnegut and, and Stephen King, actually. I, he's written a wonderful book called On Writing which I'd recommend to anybody. It is about fiction, but it works just as well for non-fiction. He says, write every day. You want to be a writer, write every day. And he says, set yourself a word limit or a time limit and make sure that you sit down and you, you either write the thousand words, if that's the number, or you write for an hour, if that's the number, whatever it is you've set yourself and you write. It's like a, a muscle that you have to use. In the same way that... Um, I mean, I, I happen to know because I can see you in this conversation. Not everybody can. You, you, you look like quite a fit person. So you're, you're, you're clearly using your body. Um, it doesn't start like that and it won't stay like that if you don't keep doing those things, you know. Um, riding my bike, you know, if I only go out on it every now and again, I'm going to be much worse at cycling than if I go out every day. You've got to practice. You've got to use those muscles. Writing is just another muscle. You've got to practice it and then get critique. And that's, I think, very hard. If you've never written for publication before and somebody sends you something back and it's covered in red pen, you can think, what the hell do they think they're doing? Like, you know, I knew what I wanted to say. Accept that critique. Accept the critique and, um, and, and try again. And it's always easier to cut than it is to add things in. So write it long and then cut, it, cut out as much as possible. Cut out all the extraneous words all the adjectives, all the things you don't need. Uh, make it as clear as possible. The best communicators are the ones who say things in the simplest way. If somebody says to you, this is a very complicated idea and I'm going to have to talk to you for the, for the next hour and you'll probably not understand it. Uh, they're not a good communicator. But if they say to you, here's something I'd like to tell you, and then they tell you, they're a good communicator. So write like that. Write like that. But read Stephen King's book. It's great. I actually listen to it um, as a um, as a, a, an ebook because he speaks so well. It's lovely hearing it in his his um, uh, Midwestern drawl. It's great. So talk to me about imposter syndrome. I'm trying to find the quote, but I can't. It's it really made me laugh. Um, I'll find it. Um, but yeah, talk to me about imposter syndrome. Well, imposter syndrome is is what happens to hopefully any leader um, from time to time where. Um, uh, we think people are going to find us out. We think that uh, we're working really hard, but somebody's going to find out that we don't really know what we're talking about, don't really know what we're doing. Um, I think it's a really good um, uh, experience to have from time to time because um, the only people who don't get it are psychopaths, you know, people who think they're great <laughs> all the time. And we maybe know a few of those in uh, very senior positions, but um, we will not want to be like that ourselves. So I think I think it's good, but it can be quite disabling if you allow it to take over. So um, what's useful with imposter syndrome is to just keep reminding yourself every now and again, your intentions are good, you're doing as much work as you possibly can, 
nobody else knows how to do this because they're not sitting in your shoes. But occasionally you will feel, oh, somebody might find me out. And maybe they will. But what are they going to do if they do? You talk about in the book how you suffered from imposter syndrome. And it's, you know, like it's your book. Who is to tell you that what you've written, you know, it's about your life. So you can't be wrong. So do you swallow your own medicine? No, always. No, no, I don't. No. Um, and people can tell you it's wrong. I mean, people will contact you and say, well, I remember that, that uh, story. And it happened differently from my perspective. And of course, memory isn't absolute. I mean, you know, when you're telling a story, you'll embellish some bits and you'll leave out other bits because it's what you recall from it. And, and also your memory might be, uh, might, might play tricks on you and you might have remembered it differently, but you're writing your own memories. And it's a, you know, my books are sort of memoir. So it's not necessarily 100% accurate all the time, especially not when you're reporting conversations. How you remember them? Are you writing anything at the moment? I am, yes, I am. In fact, um, just finished it. I've been doing an online fictional blog um, of a woman who's um, experiencing a few challenges during the coronavirus crisis. And um, I've just finished it. It's a novel. Um, I've just finished it, literally just finished it. And um, there's a publisher who might be interested, so we'll see. But uh, it's online at the moment, so people can find it. It's called loveinthetimeofcorona.net. So last thing I wanted to ask you, what one thing would you like for somebody that is either a minority, in a minority, whether that's race or they feel like they're the only one in their household, their organisation, um, experiencing some mental illness? What would you like? What would you say to them? What would you like them to know? I'd like them to know they really matter and that they may feel like they're the only one, but if they look hard enough, they will find their tribe somewhere. And once you've found your tribe, once you've found a friend who shares some experiences, uh, there's two of you. And then maybe you can find a third one and there'll be three of you. And you can gradually build a team that way. Um, but also, you know, these lead leadership jobs, they are lonely. They really are lonely. You know, when you're lying awake at two o'clock in the morning thinking, I've got three options and they're all absolutely awful. Every single one of them is going to upset somebody. Every single one of them is going to cause distress. Every single one of them is going to, um, uh, could be the wrong decision. Um, there's nothing harder than that. Um, but in the end, you have to make a decision and you have to live with the decision that you've made, whichever one it is that you choose. As I said earlier, best not to rush those decisions. But going back to those people feeling lonely, find, find, find a member of your tribe, you know, and, um, or find an ally. If you can't find a member of your tribe, find somebody who says, well, it's, it's not your fight, it's our fight, and it will help you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you like what you hear, it would be great if you could give us a shout out on social media. You can find me on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram again at THC Primary Care or on LinkedIn. Just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you really like it, it would be great if you left us an iTunes five star rating and review. And I will see you in the next episode.